You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage at work, at home and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard. Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. Today's podcast is with Marcus Collins. Marcus is an award-winning marketer and cultural translator. He is the head of strategy at Wyden Kennedy, New York, and a clinical assistant professor of marketing at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. He's got a great new book. It's called For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. Enjoy the pod. Unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Marcus Collins, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm stoked to be here. So, a sweet spot for me has always been the intersection of my career as a creative executive at Second City, and my immersion in behavioral science, neuroscience, and other areas of study. And you write in your new book, quote, the marriage of academia and practice has been the biggest cheat code in my career because it unlocked an unequivocal truth. If you want to get people to move, there's no vehicle more powerful or more influential than culture, full stop, end quote. All right, let's unpack that because culture is a loaded word or maybe a word that people don't give much credence to, and they should. Yeah, it's a word that we use colloquially, so it's a part of our normal vernacular, and we sort of like kind of, we use it willy-nilly. And not to undermine our use of the word, it's just I think that if we had a better understanding of what culture is, not only would we give it more uh, more credence and more respect to its gravitas, but also we'd have more agency to navigate the world. Because as the quote said, to your point, that there's no external force more influential to human behavior than culture. And the better we understand it and the mechanisms that make up culture, the more likely we are to navigate it and perhaps even uh, leverage its power to get people to adopt behavior, which is super powerful if you are uh, invested in the in, in getting people to move. I thought one of the wise things that my friend Melissa Daimler said, she's at Udemy, and she says, culture is happening uh, in your organization, whether you are doing anything about it or not. That's right. <laughs> so right. that's and a very like, sobering idea. Yeah. I mean, culture is like, it, it's hard for us to put into words. And scholars have, you know, wax poetic about what it is and how it's hard to define because it's so omnipresent. It's in everything that we do. It's like explaining water to a fish. It's in everything. One scholar writes that the mind cannot operate independent of culture, whether we're cognizant of it or not. I mean, mm. culture, it's, it is the governing operating system of humanity. It is, as Durkheim 
uh, fashions it. It's the system of conventions and expectations to demarcate who we are and what people like us ought to do. And whether we are aware of it or not, our behaviors are influenced by culture, what we buy, where we go, what we do, how we dress, where we marry, if we marry, who we marry, where we go to school, if we go to school, how we bury the dead, if we bury the dead, where we vacation, where we eat. All these things are byproducts of our cultural subscription. Culture moves forward on the basis of a simple question. Do people like me do something like this? The answer is yes, I do it. The answer is no, I don't. And hundreds, if not thousands of our decisions are made through that rubric. So you're a marketing guy, advertising guy, um, and you're at Wyden and Kennedy. This is a very pr- prominent firm. So I'm curious if your path was a little bit like mine in the sense that, you know, let, let's it's 1992. I'm sitting here, you know, uh, we're putting up a show, we're working on a show, and I see Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert improvise a scene, and I see what it does to the audience, and they're all laughing at the same time, and I'm like, huh. There's some. There's got to be some math behind that. There's got to be some science behind that. And I took that away, and then I see that happen again with like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler or whatever, and not even people that we don't know those, those names. And you're working with major clients on major campaigns that our other people write business books about. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Um, but then you take this or this this sort of adjunct route, this this other route inside academia. What you know? Where where did that? Was the thirst always there or is this something that sort of evolved over time? I wish that I uh, was brilliant enough to have had a eureka moment like you, but I did not. I didn't stretch. My my eureka moment was more uh, one of panic and desperation. <laughs> hey, just as good. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I uh, you know I started as an engineer. I I studied materials engineering because I thought the polymers were interesting. Mm-hmm. The fact that these carbon chains kind of come together because of their shared affinity for an electron, that they built these new structures because these structures, new properties are able to manifest from their connections. And, and while that was interesting, it, I didn't necessarily love it. Didn't really see, I, I didn't see myself doing that for the rest of my life. So I went into music and then found my way in, into business. And you know, fast forward a decade or so later, I'm working in advertising, running social. Like I am the thought leader for social in an agency, a prominent agency called Translation, uh, ran by a gentleman, my name is Steve Stout. And I'm the guy, I'm the social thought leader in the building. And my wife and I are at dinner with her friend from, from, uh, from, from New York and we're eating dinner and her friend is a social worker. Mm-hmm. And throughout the whole conversation, keeps, she keeps saying, well, in social, we do this. And in social, we do that. And I'm like, why does she keep saying that? Because it's exactly what I say. In television, uh, you do this, but in social, you do that. On radio, you do this, but in social, you do that. And it dawned on me, oh, She's saying that because social is people. Duh, Marcus. Social is people. Social work, social justice, social action. It's all people. And in that moment, it was like a Jerry Maguire moment for me. Mm-hmm. I had this huge epiphany. Social is people. And immediately it turned into dread because I realized I knew nothing about people. Nothing. Really? Other than what I experienced anecdotally, I knew the phrase Freudian slip. And uh, I took social <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. I took social 101 in undergrad and I practically slept through it. I, I say that okay. with great shame. And as an engineer, you don't have to take a lot of humanities courses. The electives right. I took were all music theory courses, but I didn't know anything about people. And in that moment, I felt like a fraud. I told my wife, I'm going to get fired because I'm a fraud. Like I knew everything about the technology because I viewed social as. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, uh, uh, 
Foursquare, those are the platforms at the time. And it was interesting, like the irony of all this is that I had a slide that I'd often show in presentations that um, social is about people. Then I go all into the technology. And it's like, it was staring right in front of me, you know, hiding in plain sight that I didn't understand people. So my wife, in her wisdom, she says, well, won't you read about people? And I go, ah, I don't read books. I read articles. It's stupid. (laughs) So she handed me a book. Dan Ariely, Predictably Irrational, Behavioral Economist that she worked with before we met um, in in business school. And it was his first book. And she's like, it's a great read. You should read it. Dan Dan is great. So I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. And I read it and it rang a bell that I couldn't unring. And it just, it completely, it it changed my life. I tell tell Dan that now, Mm -hmm. Um, know each other, that like, you've changed my life because I saw the world through lenses that I'd never seen before. And since then, I've, I've just been in student posture trying to better understand people. And you're right. The fact that what happens with Stephen Colbert, what happens with uh, with Amy uh, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, these things are, like what you said, it's like it's it's mathematical, it's science. And as a creative, you know, on the, in the creative industry, you know, we say, you know, it's jazz, not math. And they go, well, actually, actually <laughs> as is by mathematical, actually. Math. And actually, had someone taught me that jazz was math, I'd be I think I would do player. very well in math. I'd do well in math, and I'd be a better jazz player. It's, you know, it's these bifurcations that aren't real. No, they're and not real. Once I remove these binaries, like, you know, we often say things in, in the world of, of practice, we'd say, oh, that works in theory. And I used to say that. And so I got a repertoire of theory and go, well, what do you mean? Like everything is theoretical. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we use theory for everything. The challenge is that we don't usually have good theory. That's why we have science. That's why we have people like the Dan Ariely's of the world who invest their lives into understanding the underlying physics of human behavior. And as we better understand it, we can leverage those things to get people to laugh, to buy, to download, to vote, to shop, to watch, to, to, to share. And, as I understood these things, my work just got infinitely better. And I said, oh, my goodness, it's this is it right here. This is the cheat code where these two worlds collide. You could be a better practitioner with a better understanding of, of theory, of human behavior. And you'd probably be a better, um, a better researcher with some understanding of how your research is applied. And that's the world I've been navigating for well over a decade now. So this might blow your mind a little bit. Uh, do you know who developed all the improv exercises and games that is the foundation of our work? No, but blow me away. Uh, she was a social worker. Her name was Viola Spolin, and her job was to better assimilate immigrant children coming into her care in the 20s and 30s at Jane Addams Hull House on the south side of Chicago. And when she didn't have immigrant kids, she took kids from the neighborhood and dragged them in to play these games. Get out of town. So listening empathizing, communicating with more than just vocabulary, communicating with status, communicating in a group, what's what's two of you doing, what are six of you doing? And her son, Paul Sills, was studying at the University of Chicago, loved the games, he took the classes, taught those same games to people like Mike Nichols, Elaine May, Alan Arkin, Barbara Harris. They formed the first improvisational theater in America called the Compass Players in 57. That turns into the second city in 1959. Same stuff that that they were teaching and then translating into performance is all the stuff that 
you know, Colbert, Bill Murray, Gilda Radner, Tim Meadows, Keegan Michael Key, Jason Sudeikis, whatever, all of them. They all learn this thing, which is why they have that sort of language together around the work. It's, it's, it's the cheat code. And when it's I look at the work, the work that I am most proud of, I literally pulled them from, from theory. Like yeah. uh, launching the Brooklyn Nets, moving them from New Jersey to Brooklyn. That is that that that's Edward Bernays' propaganda theory that you can unite the people by declaring an enemy of the state, united Brooklynites by declaring Manhattanites as the enemy. So like, yeah, let's talk, talk about that a little bit more. So you're you're at the agency, and and the the Nets are moving from New Jersey to Brooklyn. Exactly, uh, yeah. new so, owner. So I'm at translation. Uh, we get the brief. New owner. Um, the Russian, as he's referred Russian to. Russian oligarch. <laughs> yeah. So he buys the New Jersey Nets. Now, for context, New Jersey Nets isn't like a celebrated team. They're not a winning team. Mm-hmm. At best, they made it to a finals and got swept, right? Got swept. Mm-hmm. Not a great team. Um, and that team is coming over to New York, to Brooklyn. Now, if anyone knows anything about Brooklyn or about New York more broadly, they do not like exports from New Jersey, except for like... Bon Jovi, uh, Bruce Springsteen, and Billy Joel. Maybe Billy Joel, yeah. yeah right. And then we'll take Lauren Hill, right? Like it's like otherwise, yeah. like, uh, right? at so, least first album. <laughs> exactly. So there's not a ton of like love for exports mm-hmm. coming out of New Jersey in, into New York. On top of that, they're building a new arena in the Atlantic Terminal area of Brooklyn. This is like a very, a very uh, a hallmark area of, of Brooklyn. And by building this arena, what we now know as Barclays, it's going to uproot a lot of local businesses, residents. It's a, it's a lot of unrest happening. So you got a bad team that no one wants from a place that no one at Brooklyn wants to be involved with, with this, this construction that's going to uproot the city. And people are pissed to say the mm-hmm. least. There, there are, there's literally documentaries, protests, boycotts that we have to fight through. Now we've got to make this team, as Brett Yarmark said, he wanted the Brooklyn Nets to be to Brooklyn what the Knicks are to Manhattan. Not an easy feat. No. Very no. difficult. So as we're looking at the value propositions, like most marketers would do, your razor sharper, your battery lasts longer, your car goes faster, your shampoo gives you body, whatever that means. We look at all the sort of compelling features and benefits of the team. And it goes, this isn't looking good. So we scrapped that and said, okay, what are we doing here? Like we essentially want Brooklyn to accept this Brooklyn product, or this product that's going to be of Brooklyn that is not of Brooklyn, this team. So how do we tap into something uniquely true to Brooklynites? And it's that Brooklynites are extremely proud of themselves. You know that saying, is Brooklyn in the house in hip hop? Like that's a real thing. Yeah. These, these, yeah. They're very, very proud. So the idea is that that's the truth about this community of people. One, dare I say, this tribe of people who live in New York, in the New York uh, five boroughs. How might we activate this pride in them, stoke the Brooklyn pride that exists in them? And I was like, oh man, let's pull from Edward Bernays' propaganda theory. He says that you can unite people by declaring an enemy of the state. And yeah. thankfully for us, at least, there is an inherent enemy to Brooklyn, and it's called Manhattan. <laughs> the other the other island right across the bridge, yeah. Brooklynites have to schlep to Manhattan every single day during the work week and schlep back home. So much so, I used to live in Brooklyn at the time, that when you leave Manhattan on Friday night, you're done with Manhattan. I'll see you Monday morning. Trying to book plans with someone on the weekends who's from Brooklyn, they go, you're right. It's either Brooklyn or bust. So there's this inherent tension that we say, well, let's play with, let's stoke that. And that's 
I mean, it, it was wildly successful for the launch of this campaign, very local in nature. Like we use out of home billboards and, and a few tweets, but by and large, we just activated what was true, the cultural characteristics, the conventions and expectations of what it means to be a Brooklynite. And the idea is that if we could declare an enemy of the state, then people will use the Brooklynettes as a way to signify their residence to Brooklyn is a badge a uh, receipt of honor, receipt of, of identity that I'm a Brooklynite. Mm-hmm. So happens to be a basketball team and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Fast forward, literally 10 years later, uh, people rep Brooklynite, the Brooklyn Nets really hard, even though the team isn't spectacular. Yeah. So second city's opening in Brooklyn. I don't know if you know this. Oh, it's amazing. You need somebody to help you launch it. I got, got you. No, yeah, no, no, no. So, so we were just kicking around titles and uh, uh, one of them was uh, second city, not on Broadway. Mm-hmm. which I think would go into your, you know, version. And the other one was we were trying to think if the, if the Chicago thing is also going to be a thing. And one of the titles was scenes from Italian beef restaurant um, playing on the Billy Joel thing. And, and, and there's more, but it's interesting because it, like it, it was very much because second city is literally named after uh, a slight about Chicago from a New Yorker. That's right. Writer. That's right. So the, the idea of embracing that is, is inherent in our genes. It also made me think of, uh, in my book, Yes And, we tell a story of when we were hired by the Department of Education by Arnie Duncan during the Obama administration. And they had a big um, event where they were going to have sort of government folk, uh, uh, principals, and union folk uh, together, teachers, all, none of whom like each other. And we were trying to find the uniting quality because, of course, improvisation is very much about uniting. We couldn't find it. So then you turn to comedy, which is your theory and also something inherent in comedy because comedy, of course, my friend has a, a phrase, if it can't be used for evil, it's not a superpower. So comedy oh, can, wow. comedy can be used for evil yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of, of, of finding an other. In this case, our other uh, that we discovered that united all these three constituencies was educators from Finland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no one wanted to hear any more about Finns <laughs> and their education. So, so we pretended we were, you know, these wild purple hair, and there were these Finnish educators. I mean, very, very clear with Second City at a certain point, but you know, bonded the people together that they had this sort of common enemy, which is again, this could be scary. You know, it's it's like great and fun the way we're talking about it, uh, but it, it 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 gets used even today uh, in, in in very nefarious ways. You know, um, I, I talk about this in the book quite a mm-hmm. bit, this idea that, you know, what I, what we're talking about here, this idea of influence behavior based on harnessing the power of culture, it's value neutral. Like it's yes, not good yeah. or bad, just is, it is, it is a, a part of our wiring as a species. We are social animals by nature. Served of people. It yeah. is what you do, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you can use that for good or for bad. And I make that that argument in the book that like with the more information you have, the more responsibility you have to your point. So like you said, it can be used for evil or for good. And, and, and I'm a firm believer that there's just so much that marketers can learn from from comedians. Just so much. Sure. Yeah. And, and you, you, I know you've seen this before. You've probably done this quite a bit, especially doing Zach Ed that business folks go to, to improv lessons yeah. to learn how to communicate better, how to be more empathetic, how to listen, how to respond, how not to respond, how to listen, but not wait to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell, I tell my clients and my students and my team, this, that the best market researchers on the planet are comedians full stop. 
I mean, they are amazing. You all are amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you essentially observe human behavior and you go, whoa, that was weird. You just yeah. look at people and go, huh, that was peculiar. Now he did it and she did it and they did it and they're doing it. Okay, this is a thing, which essentially as a researcher, as a scholar, I go, oh, you are now bounding uh, social phenomena. Yeah. This is a thing. It's happening. I'm seeing instances of this. Now you ask yourself, comedians go, why is this happening? <laughs> it essentially is applying theory to the social phenomenon you just observed. This yeah. is what scholars do. This is what I do in my scholarly research. Mm-hmm. Observe a phenomenon and figure out what is the underlying physics that's informing this thing. And comedians just have such a great repertoire of theory. Even they don't have the language to say it, they inherently know what it is just because of how empathetic you are as a discipline. And you go, oh, this is happening because of this underlying theory. Now, how do I say it in a way that gets people to see it in themselves? Or as Emily Dickinson puts it, uh, tell all the truth, but tell it with a slant. Yeah, that's right. And you get on stage and you go, have you ever noticed that every time you go to the mall, you do blah, blah, blah. And we're all like, it's so me. That's me. I see. Yeah, you see yourself. It's interesting. My my wife, Anne, is a... um, an academic. She's got tenure uh, professor and she runs the first ever BA in comedy writing and performance at Columbia College here in Chicago. So four-year degree that you can get in comedy. And one of the things that she, because uh, she did all this behavioral science work with me as well, is one of the things she talks about the difference between improvisers and stand-ups is that improvisers do a lot of perspective taking, you know, from the audience. So it's almost like a Nielsen rating system in terms of like, okay, what's on your mind? Great, great. And we're going to show it back to you. And now we know what that laugh is. The difference with stand-ups is they have to do perspective giving. The first five minutes of their act are letting the audience know how to watch them. And you you name the stand-up you like, especially with the beginning special of their career, it's all what's wrong with them. So Pat Oswalt's a schlub, John Mulaney is a drunk, Amy Schumer is a slut, keep going down the list. And, and it is, it is because we, and I talk about this a lot in my work that we don't connect to your successes. We connect to your fiascos. Give me your struggle, you know, and that can be, that can be funny, but it also can be, um, uh, um, showing your resilience in terms of, of making it through. So leaders, when we talk about vulnerability and, and storytelling and, and, and what it means to be authentic, it's like, yeah, I know that sounds airy-fairy. It's not. It's actually gritty. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's, it, it takes a lot of courage to be authentic. It does. It, I, mean, like, I mean, you know this well. Like comedians, like they all come from a very, very, a very strong place of hurt, of, of like vulnerability. And like, I'm going to bare my soul to you right now. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and in, the audience actually comes to sort of go on that ride with you to like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it is very much, I mean, it's so similar to marketing communications and that it is discursive that it's not like a person is delivering their, either their standup or their, their improv. It's not like I'm performing to an audience. The audience is a part of the discord and it's back and forth. And the same thing goes with marketing communications. We're not just shouting messages. At least good marketers aren't just shouting messages they are entering the discourse with something yes. meaningful to say. And as they enter the discourse based on how they see the world, the framing that they use to interpret the world, people go, oh, come on in, Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, like your point of view actually makes sense. Come sit at the table, be a part of this discourse. If not, it goes, oh, you just put a black uh, tile up because everyone else is doing it. Please get away. And yeah. those things get, dis- get disregarded. And I think that if we, rather whatever discipline you're in, you're in, we can all just benefit from being 
just a little bit more human. Yeah, and, and you talk about this too in the book of, of like the the reason comedy doesn't work if there's no audience because there's no laughter. You don't know if it works. So right. comedians forever, I mean, you know, that's why Chris Rock and others work in small clubs to test out their act before they do the Netflix special. Um, and so that sort of two-way communication has existed since the dawn of the art form uh, and, and, and only recently has entered the conversation once, and not even at the beginning of social. I don't think, right, when you first started in social, I don't think even then people understood truly the dialogue that they were in until they got nailed and were like, oh, <laughs> we are no longer in control. That's right. That's right. And it, the interesting part is that it became evidence that we were never in control. Well, that, <laughs> that you know, we were, we were shouting messages out to the world because we essentially owned the media vehicles in which we communicated. They yep. weren't back and forth. They were the only way that we knew they were working is when we saw sales go up and we weren't, I would say sophisticated enough to understand that a lot of this is just the power of media frequency that were driving sales, not connection to the brand, not people seeing themselves inside the brand in many ways. But then once these technologies help enable what naturally happens between people that we enter conversation and discourse, marketers say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's not what we intended. (laughs) I said this, but that's not what I meant. And he's like, well, yeah, because you marketer don't make meaning. People do. You signal things to the world. Then people go, oh, I see it that way. Or, oh, I don't. And the more we understand that, the more important understanding culture becomes because culture is the meaning-making system by which we see the world and translate the world, right? We see the world through our cultural lenses. That's why for some, a cow is leather, for others, it's a deity, and for some, it's dinner. But which one is it? It's all of them, depending on who you're talking to. And if we walk into uh, a scenario without understanding people's meaning-making frames, we say things that come off as racist, as uh, as a uh, 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 objectifying women, as yada 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 yada. You, you run the list on all the offenses that we've seen brands do. And social networking platforms just created the receipts by which we can be like, oh, when you said this on Tuesday, September twenty third, this is why we're roasting you now. So the term identity politics has to make you laugh because you're like, what did you ever think it was? <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Two things I want to talk about identity with you about. One's for me, one's for you. Okay. Uh, the one that's for me is where did you get this um, Chicago hot dog story? Oh, so so I've always been fascinated by it. Um, so I grew up in Detroit, born and raised. Yep. My, my grandparents grew up in Sycamore, Illinois. Oh, they, okay. they lived in Sycamore, Illinois, right outside of DeKalb. My mother was born in Danville. And every Christmas, we would go to Sycamore, we'd go to Chicago to go um, – to go shopping at, at the, Marshall Fields, the tree. The- yeah, we did the whole thing. It was the whole. Yeah. It was the whole thing. Like I, I remember those th- those things fondly. And sometimes we spend the summer in Sycamore with my grandparents, and we'd go into the city for the taste of Chicago. Maybe we'll go, you know, here or there. And I remember no one ever having ketchup on their hot dogs. Yeah. It's kind of always set in the recesses of my brain. And I saw this campaign from Heinz Ketchup uh, uh, some years back, where they tricked people into thinking that they made a new sauce that they called dog sauce, mm-hmm. but it was really just ketchup under a, a different name. Yep. And people were like, this tastes so good. And once it was revealed that it was ketchup, people lost their minds. <laughs> it was like, 
And one guy said, like, you're, you're playing with our identities out here. And I thought it was just the most powerful thing. They didn't want it. That you would think that people would not do a thing because of the functional benefits or the co- the functional consequences. Does it taste good? Is, yep. it, it doesn't last longer. Doesn't go faster or whatever value propositions. But really, we do these things habitually because of who we are, our identity. So, like, I gotta find this story. I gotta know what the origin of this story was, and, and there it was. There's a guy, Jimmy's, had, Jimmy's Red Hot. Red Hot, exactly. He, he had a, a hot dog stand. And he said on in the in the building you know, on the on the wall said don't no don't even ask no ketchup don't even ask for it. That was just him. Just him. But out of that comes now a cultural norm for yes. Chicagoans. And yeah. if you move to Chicago and you go, I'm a Chicagoan now. You go, I guess I don't do this. And it's just it's so interesting how once we affix our identity to a thing, how quickly we adopt. The it's important. It's important. Uh, okay. And this one's for you also yes. slightly for me in the sense that um, my, my boss, uh, Ed, uh, is a graduate of the University of Michigan. Oh, awesome. Go blue. And I have no dog in this. I mean, my wife went to Northwestern. I, I but I don't like if, if I'm hanging my, you know, shingle on that, that's not good. So, <laughs> but you people are out of your minds. <laughs> I mean, he got vi- my friend Abby, who left here not because of this, went to Ohio State, and the two of them. I looked at some of these texts; they were not. I mean, <laughs> HR would have had a field day. It's so true, man. I I was at an agency uh, that I will not name, uh, and we were meeting with the Schottensteins. So, if you're on the Schottensteins, yeah, they are a big deal in Columbus, Ohio. They own DSW, um, Value City Furniture. American Eagle, like they, they own all that. Like they, like their, their, their distribution is connected to the airport in Columbus. Like that's how important these guys are. And, you know, me in my naivete, we go down there to, for a meeting, we're pitching them. And most of my slides, I use references from my life because that's how I get into it. So I have all these Michigan references, like, like it's literally like seven different Michigan references, references in this deck. And we walk in the front door, there's a, like, gargantuan huge ohio state chair like and i'm like is this gonna be a problem they're like come on we're adults like we are adults this is a business it was totally a problem an issue so i mean i kind of i just kind of wrote it off like sure uh-huh. columbus of course they'll have ohio state paraphernalia no big whoop we go into the meeting it gets to my part we get to my part and i think i'm on like slide 10 and as a Michigan reference, and this kind of like ingest, ha ha ha. Oh, I know you didn't put a ref, re, Michigan reference there. Ha ha ha. By like slide 17, when it gets like the fifth reference, they literally like, please stop now. Like, mm-hmm. stop. So I was like, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. So we literally jumped, jumped past my section because they were offended. And yep. it just seems so, it's, it's odd for me because I have shifted my identity from being a student which at that time I did have a lot of contentment for Ohio state, but now being a professor, I go, Oh, it's just an academic institution. My allegiance is just different. But when I identified as a Michigan Wolverine, Oh my goodness, just so much, so much anger and frustration when it came to Ohio state for schools that I was indifferent about before I went to Michigan. I mean, this is how powerful our identities are. I mean, it, it, it changes everything about us and culture 
is foundationally established upon our identity. Because of who we are, we see the world a certain way. And the way we see the world informs how we behave in the world and the cultural production that we take in. They become ways by which we express our way of seeing the world through music, art, film, uh, uh, brands, and branded products. And I think the, the leap that you take ne- quite naturally is when we, okay, we've got these identities, but universally what we know, and Dan Gilbert talks about this among others, is we share a lot of the same stuff, whether it's love, uh, family, you know, uh, uh, all these sort of these, these sort of big, broad ideas of the things that we sort of buy into. And in your section on preaching the gospel, you talk about brands that get very smart about what they're selling and that in that. And I thought here's here's the one that I thought was most interesting because I broke this down with my with my uh, son the other day, which was you talk about Coca-Cola selling happiness, mm-hmm. which 100 percent like we all know. If you don't know the Coke story, you've seen Mad Men, you know. I mean, this is like they, they have done this very early on. And I, who do not uh, really care for soft drinks or have soft drinks in my house, if I'm going out for like an Italian beef with my son, I will get a Coke and I get the Coke because it feels like it's going to make me happy. <laughs> and it is sugar water. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. But, but, but like, I don't know, I, I, like, I can't control it. It's, it's, it's how I feel. And I was sort of like, and I got, I, I just be honest too. I was sort of like, what does second city sell? Because yeah, I was sort of like, you know, there's laughter, there's shared laughter. And I said, is it happiness? And my son goes, no, because the, and the, it's not just laughter because it's the kind of at second city. It's a, it's a laugh that when you're driving home, you realize was a little bit deeper and a little bit sadder than maybe you thought it was. So it makes you think. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm, t-. and I don't have the, the thing to sort of distill it. But I imagine for any entity, for any brand, for the University of Michigan, even, it's what is that thing? And it probably is, while multifaceted, still kind of one thing. Yeah. So there, there is like one governing sort of um, North Star that informs everything we do. And to your point, who doesn't want to be happy? Well, actually, not everybody wants to be happy. That's true. But like, but by and large, the majority of us want want some happiness, some joy. And we may get happiness out of being miserable. We all kind of want some joy. But the way joy manifests is different for all of us, right? And we find people who like things who are like, like ourselves. For instance, I love toilet humor. Love, love, mm-hmm. love, it. love it. Can't get enough. Not my wife's cup of tea, but me all day long. Give me Sarah Silverman. Give me uh, uh, um, Eddie Murphy. Uh, give me those. Like, give me those guys. I want them all day long. Family Guy all day long. Mm-hmm. My wife, not so much her. We both like to laugh. We both like comedy. But the idea is clicking down to the idiosyncratic characteristics that govern people like us. So my wife and I, who clearly are married and we are a partnership. We have to agree on something that both of us kind of like. Yeah. Right. But with my other people, we watch other things. So our consumption behaviors become byproducts of who we are beyond just the surface thing, but the thing that clicks down into the nuances of us. What's your compromise comedy? Say it again. What's your compromise comedy between you and your wife? Rom-coms. Oh, okay. Romantic comedies. You can't go wrong. You can't can't go wrong. like, Like a park and rec maybe or a 30 rock? 30 Rock, for sure. We okay. are big, 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 big on 30 Rock. Succession, not Succession, but Succession. Um, uh, um, no, I do love Succession. Succession's so good. I was thinking Succession. I was thinking Insecure. 
that's a, oh, that's insecure, a sure. Yeah. So we find we find, but they're always like something romantic. Uh, well, yeah, but what I'll say though, Thirty Rock being because I've analyzed this a lot, but that does combine some of those taboo stuff that you like they're playing with that's underneath the comedy with these rich sitcom tropes that are that are classic that are very easy to understand that also work in a story sort of level um so that's a very but that's a very unique property and there's not a lot of stuff like that the powerful part about this is that even though my wife and i love her to death clearly she's my wife that when i see something i know what to share with her and what not yep and this is just the powerful part for brands, for entities, for organizations or institutions that want to activate the network effect that comes from propagation, that people do the segmenting for you, that you tap into people who see the world the way you do, who abide by the same meaning system that you do, not at a high level, but at a very nuanced level that people go, oh, that's awesome. I'm going to show Kelly that because I know he's going to love it. I'm not going to show my wife that because I know that she won't. Yep. And what happens is that I share it with you, then you share it with someone who's like us, and then so on and so on and so on. And my wife will end up seeing it later down the road just to be socially included. That's why I watched 10 Hours of Tiger King. Not because I'm into big cats. It's not my thing. But I want to be a part of the discourse. I wanted to know what the memes were all about. So I watched it because everyone else was doing it. So you start with the collective of the willing, activate those people, and then they go tell other people. And as they tell other people, the people who are on the periphery that are late to the party, they'll show up just because nothing draws a crowd like a crowd. Are you? Have you run across, uh, he, he's from the, uh, I think his seminal work was written in 1959, Irvin Goffman. Absolutely. Yeah. He's so, sociologist. He's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Goffman's work was really, especially for someone who grew up in theater, to me to have this idea of you're on stage, you're off stage, you're backstage personality, that you're not schizophrenic. You're right. many selves. Right. And again, again, Whitman told us this, you know, uh, uh, as well, well, before that. But, but you know, I find that that I think as human beings, uh, we are reluctant to acknowledge that because it is complex and it, it's and it also means like when I know when people are being like you can't be your authentic self at work. It's like yeah, we're not saying show up in your pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> what we're saying is you talk a certain way to your parents that is different than the way you talk to your friends. And you're right. probably going to lean more on the parent side than the friend side right. when you're talking to your boss. That's right. It depends on to 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 Guffman's point. You know what character you choose to play. Yeah. Because of the character, my identity that I choose to play, I don certain costumery. I adhere to a certain script, how I talk. I behave based on what the character is supposed to be or what the, the audience expects of me. Cooley, another uh, sociologist, refers to this as the looking glass theory. That mm-hmm. I'm not who I think I am. I'm not who you think I am. I am who I, who I think you think that I am. Right. So that our yeah, identities yeah. are socially constructed. And once we decide on what character we're going to play, we navigate the world through the shared expectations of people like me. And to your point, we go, oh, man, I can't be myself here because I'm not playing the character that I play when I'm outside these walls. And you go, well, sure, you could play the same character, but like just change your outfit. <laughs> it's like, you know, like, yeah, like you can still be you. Like, I'm still me when I go to the church sanctuary. I'm just wearing a suit as opposed to wearing a sweatsuit if I were going to play basketball. I'm still Marcus. And that's where authenticity comes into play. Yeah. And no matter the context, I am myself. I am the same 
character, as it were, whether it's backstage, front of stage, or outside the mezzanine. And once we adhere to a certain character and identity, and we show up like that character and all of its conventions and expectations, people go, he's just so real. That's why everybody loved Cardi B when she first came out. Yeah. It's like, my goodness, this woman, it don't matter where she is. She could be with the president, with mm-hmm. Jimmy Fallon, or, mm-hmm. you know, on a video set with Megan Thee Stallion. She going to be Cardi B. And we love that because a part of us all want to be that courageous to be ourselves. I mean, this is the nerdy thing that that where I really was was um, jiving with your book, because as you're seeing that and you're applying it to your professional job, I know, I mean, I'm guessing, but I think I'm right. You apply it to your personal life like I do with mine. Totally. So so Heather Caruso, who I co-led the Second Science Project with, introduced me to William Swan's self-verification theory, mm-hmm. which is the idea of, you know, that... You know, we think everyone wants to be seen like their best self, but actually they want to be seen um, uh, uh, as they see themselves. And we're such tricky people. We don't we don't always teach people how we see ourselves because it can be a bit embarrassing. So if I see myself as clumsy, it's really important you see me as clumsy so you don't throw me a ball. That's right. (laughs) That's right. But if I don't tell you, what are you doing? And so when we are teaching at Second City the need to be others focused with someone on stage to get to their want as you're creating a scene, the, uh, the idea that there is a want behind the want is, yeah. is, is this idea of like, that is the, that is the crux of the best kind of comedy where it's like, I th- totally saw this coming. I thought I saw this coming. I did not see this coming. And it's like the rug is pulled out. Exactly. Right. And, and gr- all great art is that way. It's, it's this, this revelation of the human condition, which is how I think art kind of started in the first place when there I mean, weren't it, cameras. I, that That's, that's the slant that Emily Dickinson talks about, right? It's the slant. It's, it's the truth. It's like, Oh, you see me, you see the world the way I do. And Oh man, I couldn't even put it in words like that. Yeah. Like, wow. I'd actually think about that. That's a true thing. Wow. You got me. And that feeling of getting got being seen, being understood. I mean, th- th- I don't think there's anything in this world more powerful. No, nope. that I me, mean, it yeah. is to me. It's a, a manifestation of feeling loved. That like you see me for who I really, really am. And our closest, the people closest to us are the ones who make those, those revelations to us. You know, they go like, you know, it's every time this happens, you do this, you go, really? I do that. And you go, you do it all the time. You go, wow, you must've been really paying attention to me. Thank you. Because Mm -hmm. we walk around this world feeling like no one sees us. Like we're just waiting to kind of chime in just so that we can be seen. But if someone can observe us, being what we believe is ourselves when there are no uh, sort of curation needs to happen where we feel like we have to be a certain thing, which is kind of ourselves and people see us. It's a really powerful thing and it creates connection. At the end of the day, we are social animals by nature. We're just trying to crash into each other because in our minds, according to anthropologists, that's how we're able to survive. Yeah. It's all about the relationships. So being seen, whether it's, I'm on a stage and I'm doing improv with someone, whether it's my relationship with someone. And they're like, Hey, you okay? Because I noticed when it happened, like I saw your body clench up. Like you saw that? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, man, I felt this way. Oh, thank you. And for a marketer to see people, not based on the boxes that we put them in these demographic makeups, but based on who they are, their identity, their cultural subscription, they go, man, these guys just get me. 
That's a brand for me, not because of what it is, but because of who I am. And that just requires a tremendous amount of empathy, cognitive empathy mm-hmm. that we don't practice enough of, which is why with my girls, I have a you know eight-year-old, a three-year-old, George and Ivy, respectively, whenever they hurt my feelings, and they do often, <laughs> because I'm emotional, I'm an emotional guy, I'll be honest, I'm being vulnerable with you here. I'm an emotional yeah, guy. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, I, I, I tell my daughter, I never say to them, how do you think that, how would you feel if I did that to you? Because that's practicing an affective empathy, the golden rule, do unto others you want done unto you. Instead, I say to them, how do you think you made daddy feel? Because I want them to start seeing the world through lenses that aren't their own. That's to make me through lenses that aren't their own. Because if they do that, they will be better at almost everything they do in this world. If they're able to connect with people at a very central core level of who they are, no matter what field you're in, they'll be able to navigate the world in, in, a, in, a, in a way better than I could ever could. Yeah, thousand percent. Uh, I could talk to you all day, uh, but we don't have all day. Uh, we always end the podcast asking our guests for a yes and story. So it's just a time in your in your life and work or home or wherever uh, that you normally would have said no, which a lot of us do all the time. But instead, you said yes and. Um, do you have a story for us? Sure. Um, when I decided to pursue academia along with practice, so living in those two worlds, um, someone said to me, like, yeah, like you should like teach classes, not just one class on the weekends, but like maybe you should teach and, and do work at the same time. And I go, you're right. Yes, comma, and I'm going to go get a doctorate. <laughs> like I'm going to get my wow. union card here. So I, I went and got a doctorate while I was teaching and while I was working and we just had a new kid much to my wife's chagrin. But I, you know, I, for me, I just felt like if I was going to do it, I'm going to do it the highest fidelity possible. Because I feel like that's why I exist. I just thought about like, what is Second City all about? What do these brands exist? Why, why, why does Coke exist for happiness? I exist to help people realize the best versions of themselves. And hopefully, prayerfully, inshallah, you know, this book is a way to sort of scale that in a way to help people uh, you know, reach the highest fidelity possible. Yeah, and I think it absolutely is. The book is called For the Culture, The Power the power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. Marcus Collins, thank you for coming on the pod. Oh, thank you. This is so much fun. Getting the SEN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Ben Anderson from WGN, and we get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.